Well, if you are doing the Eat This Book Challenge, you're taking the challenge, then we are one-twelfth of the way through. I guess that's one way to look at it. But I, I gotta, gotta warn you, I, I trust it's going well, but I, got, I have to warn you on this, that starting tomorrow, really you are entering into some of the most difficult reading in the Bible as you get into the book of Leviticus. And um, I'm just warning you that a lot of people who want to read through the Bible usually stop in Leviticus. It's where they get stuck. And so I, I want you to know you, you need to just persevere. There's a lot of cultural stuff going on there that is so radical and alien to anything we experience and in all honesty, the sacrificial system is very complicated and sophisticated. And so you're trying to understand and put it together and it's not making any sense. And it's easy to say this is irrelevant, this is useless, I don't need this, I'm wasting my time, and set it aside. But I promise you that if you will not go to sleep while you're reading, you'll stick with it and you'll try to, to figure it out. And you'll be frustrated, you will, but... There'll be things down the road that will connect some of the dots for you. Things that you will miss if you don't. So just persevere, get through. As a matter of fact, I think in a couple of weeks we'll finish the book of Leviticus in our reading. We're going to have special stickers that say, I survived Leviticus. And so if in fact, you, you motivation there. If you persevere, you'll be able to wear proudly uh, your I survived Leviticus sticker. Anyway, I just want to give you a little, little review where we've been. So, so we can kind of put the, the feel here. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 really talks about the, uh, the curse. If you're looking for a title to slap on Genesis 1 through 11, the curse is it. Genesis is broken into two parts in the curse. Because what Genesis 1 through 11 lets us know is it, it talks about the spread of this sin virus and how it's infected all of mankind. It's infected the entire world. It's got no antidote. It is lethal. And left to ourselves, we're just a mess. When Genesis 11 ends, we are, the world is a, in a big mess. Then the, the second part of Genesis, Genesis 12 through, through 50. It's fascinating. 1 through 11 takes thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It covers 12 through 50, maybe 350 years. And, and what happens right at the very beginning of 12, God comes to a man named Abram. He's going to rename him Abraham, but he comes to a man named Abraham. And I want you to, to, to understand this before we show you what he said to Abraham. Abraham was not a nice Christian guy. Abraham was a pagan, living in a pagan land, worshiping pagan gods. He was just a pagan person all over the place. And God chose him out for no reason, not, not because he was such a good guy or nice or sharp or wise. Or, God picked Abraham. And this is what God says to him. Next slide. Oh, sorry. And one more. Here we go. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And this is the Abrahamic covenant here. It says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. By the way, notice as he's saying this, that all you get out of this is promise. He's not saying, I will make you into a great nation if you are good people. 
I'll make you into a great nation just as long as you are going to church on a regular basis. No, no, you don't sign any of that. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Not could be if you play your cards, right? I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All of the world that's broken. We just saw that in Genesis 1 through 11. But I'm going to fix it. I'm going to bless the whole world. He's not talking about one people group here. He wants to bless the whole world. He wants to fix this issue with the whole world. Now this is going to be repeated to Abraham in chapter 15 and chapter 17. I think in chapter 22. He's going to add one more thing to this promise. And that's the land. It's very significant for the people of Israel. The promised land. Right? Well, then Abraham's, God comes to Abraham's boy, Isaac, after Abraham dies, and says, Abraham, remember the promises I made to your father? Well, I'm making it to you as well. We're making you into a great nation, and all the, all the promises, we're going to fix the world through you. He then comes to Isaac's boy, Jacob. And he's going to rename Jacob, and he's going to, God is going to rename Jacob Israel. And then Jacob's going to have 12 boys. These will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God, as he comes to these guys, and he has his 12 boys, one of them, their name is, is Joseph, right? We remember from a couple of weeks back, Joseph ends up down in Egypt. He becomes the prime minister of, of, of Egypt. And meanwhile, all of his brothers and their wives and children are hanging out in the promised land, Canaan, 70 people strong. There are only 70 Jews in the world at this point. And Joseph brings them down to Egypt so they can protect them because Joseph's kind of big wig there and he can keep them safe and feed them and take care of them. And the book of Genesis ends. It's a good thing. Things are going well at the end of, of Genesis. But Exodus kicks in and it looks like you just flip a page, but it's 400 years later when you start to pick up Exodus. And Exodus can be broken into two parts as well. In the first part of Exodus, you realize that Israel is now one and a half to two million people strong. They're still in Egypt. And the Egyptians have enslaved them, making their life very difficult. And so God sees his people and he recognizes that it's time. If you can think of this, think of Egypt is the womb by which the nation of Israel is going to grow. And when it's ready to be born, God sends a very unique handmaid, Moses, to lead him out. You've got the ten plagues and the crossing the Red Sea and all, all that. Mike talked about that last week. And so the first half of, of Exodus, almost, you know, first 18, 19 chapters, deal with redemption, if you want a word. Redemption. And God is leading these guys to the promised land. He's going to take them to their land. But he's got to stop off somewhere first. So that's what Exodus 19, they stop off in the middle of the desert at Mount Sinai, the Sinai Conference Grounds and Retreat Center. God's going to retreat with these guys for one year. And this is what he's doing. This makes sense if you think this out. The, the Israelites have been in Egypt for the last 430 years. There's not a single word of scripture. Not a word has been written down yet. They have no Bible. They've got no verses. They've got no commands. The only thing they've got is this oral story that they've heard about their grandfather Abraham. One day, a God talked to him and promised him these things. That's all they've got to go on. And when they're in Egypt, you know what? The only gods they know are the gods of the Egyptians. And the only way to worship is the way the Egyptians worship. That's how you're supposed to worship. And the only holidays they have are Egyptian holidays, which are always associated with, with their gods. 
They walk like Egyptians and talk like Egyptians. And these guys, now they were Israeli blood, but in every other way, pragmatically, they were Egyptian. And God's getting his people out of Egypt. He's going to be able to get them out of Egypt, although getting the Egypt out of them is going to be a little bit more of a challenge. So he starts, stops off at Sinai. And what he gives them, basically from Exodus 19 all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, is really a culture. He says, remember all those holidays? No, no, no. I'm giving you new holidays. And remember all those gods you had and how you were supposed to worship them? No, no, no. There's, I'm giving you a new way to worship. And I'm going to give you a, a new, new government structure. And I'm going to give you new uh, crime and punishment type stuff. I'm going to, he gives them a new way of doing life. And it takes them about a year there at Sinai. And then the first thing he gives them is very famously known as the Ten Commandments. And so, the Ten Commandments, and you know, you know the commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me, you should have no graven image, don't misuse my name, we want you to take the Sabbath seriously, you want to honor father and mother, don't kill anybody, don't commit adultery, don't steal anything, don't lie, and don't covet. So he gives them, gives them the Ten Commandments. And if, if, if one day, Jesus was asked, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Now, I don't know if the guy's thinking about these ten, but this is what Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's look at this for a minute, because what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a synopsis of the ten commandments. Look at the next slide. Top four commandments deal with what? It deals with our vertical relationship with God. How are you going to love God? And then commandments 5 to 10 deal with how we're going to love each other. So it's exactly what Jesus said. All, that's why you could say all of the whole Old Testament resides on these two commands. Love God and love e- e- each other. John's going to tell us, if you say you love God but you hate your brother, you're a liar. Because you can't, you can't do that. The commandments are a unit. They're not individual things that we, we pick and we, we choose. Now, you need to know, too, that the Ten Commandments are going to be followed by about 600 extra ones. And you've read some of those. The end part of Exodus gets a little bit long, doesn't it? Well, you're going to read a lot more of of those. And most of those will fit nicely under these different categories. But but you, you look at some of those those. Laws, those rules, you know, and the, the priest had to kill a something, I forget, a goat or a bull or a lamb or something, and they had to take blood and put it on their top of their earlobe and their thumb and their big toe or was it the left toe? I can't even remember. And you go, what use is it? Does it matter anyway? Who cares? Right? Now we never say that out loud. But inside, we're saying, what, what is this? This is you're wasting my time. And there's a lot of other ones out there like that. Say, so, so what is, what is the purpose of the law? Why do we even have so much of the Bible's about this? Why? This is why people don't like to read it. Why? Well, how do you apply the law as a New Testament, New Covenant Christian? It's important. And because of what I just mentioned, there, well, there are three different uh, possibilities or three different things that have been set forth to the church. One is because of the blood on the earlobe thing, it makes no sense. Throw it all away. You throw all the Old Testament law away. We're just not doing any of it. We're just living by the New Testament. That's it. Well, that's a heresy that's called antinomianism that the church kicked out a long time ago. And this is one of the reasons why they did. 
the Apostle Paul writing in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says this. He says, all scripture. And that word scripture, that's a very technical term. It's not talking about the New Testament. That's an Old Testament word. That word means graphe. It's, it's the Old Testament writings. So Paul, talking about all those laws, he says, all scripture is God, not some of it, all of it is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of the, all of the law we need to be trained so that we can live righteously, Paul says. So this idea of throw it all out, that's not going to work. Well, a second uh, situation that people have suggested is, okay, we have to obey all of it. Now, not the sacrificial system or the temple thing, because uh, Jesus, and we'll get into that in the, in the future, but everything else we have to obey. Well, problem with that is that approximately 70% of the Old Testament law you cannot obey unless you are living in Israel underneath a theocratic government with the temple. And there's no such a place today. And so you automatically cannot live this out. So what the third scenario, and this is where most of the church has landed on, is that we talk with what Paul says, we agree, all scripture is profitable for us, is inspired by God, we need all of it. But all of it, all of it relates to us, some directly, some indirectly. Let me tell you what I mean. The law, and this will help you, I think, as we read, can be broken down into three categories. These are not biblical categories, but they're, they're helpful. One is the law falls into civil law, law for the government. Israel was their own government at this time where God was over it. Uh, civil law, well, those laws obviously are not for us today because we're not there. A second set of laws were the ceremonial laws, the priesthood laws, the sacrificial laws, the temple laws. Those are not for, for us today. That's been done away with. But there's a third group of law, laws, the moral laws. And we see those reiterated often, not always, but often in the New Testament. Uh, now, even though moral laws we, we have to live by, the other two, I would say this. Every single law, even the civil and ceremonial, they have behind each law a principle that our job is to uh, understand and apply. Let me give you an example. Exodus chapter 22, verse 17, good old King James says um, something like this. If I can remember King James, he says, suffer not a witch to live. What do you do with that one, right? You find all your friends who are in Wiccan and you kill them, I guess. That's you want to apply scripture, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, first of all, that law was not given to individuals. It was given to the government. We are not this, the theocratic government, so it's not, not for us t- today. Uh, but what principle might you be able to derive from that? This is not rocket science. What kind, of, what kind of principle? Well, I guess looking at it, I would assume that God is saying, don't have anything to do with the occult. Stay away. Don't let this be part of who you are. Okay, okay, I can, I can, I can, I can see that. So all of the, the law is, is for us today. But here's a problem with the law. And here's the problem. It's really not in the law, it's with our perspective of it. Because sometimes we don't see it through God's eyes. I think there are three myths about God's commands. And we're going to counter those for just a few moments with three truths. And our job, our goal is we want to see the through God's eyes. We want to land on the truths. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 
20 as we unpack this a little bit. Now, the, the law, let me say this and I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate. The law is, is not an issue of distress. It's not for distress, but delight. Let me say this again. The law is not for distress, but delight. One more time. Not for distress, but delight. Uh, when we think of the law, we want something we have to get around. We've got to find a loophole. We don't like it. It's restrictions. Who's telling us what to live? And we, we, don't, we don't care for the law most of the time. It restricts us. But we need to know that's not the way Israel viewed the law. They liked it, as a matter of fact. They, they liked it so much that these Ten Commandments... They honored these things so much that they built a special box for them. Uh, Hebrew word for box transliterated is, is ark. And they called the, the commandments of ten, the, the covenant. So they put them in the, the box for the covenant, the ark of the covenant. And they, they made it very special. They put gold on this box. It's a very significant deal. But you need to know initially the only significance in the Ark of the Covenant was in what it held. The box itself was, 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 was nothing. It was only important regarding what it held. And whenever they did a parade, they paraded that thing out front because they wanted to be reminded, God spoke to us. God gave us his law. Uh, Psalm 119.97, Psalmist writes, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. Not because I got to do it, because it's the kind of thing good Christian people do. But I love it. I want to do it. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, 16, kind of our verse for this whole series. When your word was found, I ate it. And it was my joy and my heart's delight. Because I'm called by your name. You might think, well, if, if they're talking about like Leviticus, it's their delight. You're saying, oh, if someone would think Le- Leviticus is their delight, I just tell you, they just need to get a life. That's all. That person is in sad shape. Um, maybe, or maybe they understand something we don't understand. There's a couple reasons at least why they would love the law. That I think as believers, as we see the law through God's eyes, we will as well. One is the law tells us about who God is. Don't think the commandments are like a bunch of arbitrary rules that God just set up. Oh, I'll pick this one, they can do this, I'll, do, I'll put some authority on their life and do that. The law is who God is. It's not stuff for me to do. It's who God is. Hence, when I read through the law, you know what? I find out who God is. Let me give you an example. You're going, let's just say you get the doctor's report. You're going to die. It's a bad situation. We all cry. It's sad. Then after that, you realize, I've got kids at home. And I've got to equip them for life. There's some stuff they don't know yet. And so you come up with your top ten list. And you sit down with your kids and you say, guys, listen to me. These, these top ten, I'm not just trying to exercise authority over you or take away your joy. Or, but I'm just telling you, if you disobey these, it's going to come back and haunt you. It's going to hurt you. You've got to live by these things. Now, your list, we, lists might have some different things on it if we all did this. But one thing your list would tell us is it would tell us who you are. It would tell us your values. It would tell us what's important to you. When we look at God's list, we learn what's important to, to, to God. The law also uh, tells us how to live. Now, follow me, okay? Because you've got to connect some dots on this. If the law is who God is, 
And if you and I have been created in his image, then you know what? The law is who we are to be. It's, it's what we were created for. It, it's, it's how we're supposed to operate. And you know as well as I do, when you use something the way it's supposed to be used, according to its operational manual, whatever, it works. It's great. It's, it, life is good. Um, let me give you an example on this. You're driving down the, the road, and the little red blinky light comes on your dashboard. Oil, oil, oil. Uh, so you pull over, you pull out the car manual, out the glove box, you read it through. What do I do when I see the blinky red light? It says oil, and it says, don't go any farther. Stop. Call a mechanic person right away. Don't drive the car. Now, if you say, eh, I'll put it in, and you keep going, are you going to be put in jail? Is Ford going to come and repo your car? You know what's going to happen? You're going to burn out your engine. You're going to create a lot of grief, a lot of pain that you didn't have to create. These, these, these commands are not uh, arbitrarily set where God's just got a stick and he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can pop you. It's like gravity. God's not waiting for you to, to defy gravity so he can push your face into the ground. He's saying it, it's a law. These are like laws, spiritual laws. And he knows if you violate these, you will get hurt. It will be a bad situation. It's not going to uh, work well for you. Um, I think it was kinder care years ago. Uh, even with their facilities out in the middle of the boondocks, you know, there's little they're, they're preschool places. Even when their facilities out in the middle of the boondocks where they're very safe, they're not on a busy road per se, there's nothing around them. The kids can go out and play all they wanted. But they found that when they, they, they let the kids out, they had no, no fences up, they didn't need them, the kids all stayed close to the building. They didn't wander from the building very far at all. But when they put fences up around the perimeter, you know what? The kids, they went all the way to the end of the fence. Was it that when they didn't see the fences, you know what? There was anxiety. They really weren't sure what was safe and what was not safe. They didn't know really how far they should go or they could go. And they, 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 there was a, a, a fear. But the fence allowed them to go much further than they were going to go anyway. It was, it was freeing. God's rules are like that. They're for our freedom. That's why they're delight. They're, they're for our, 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 our joy. They're for us to get the most out of life. And without them, we end up, we end up in, in pain. And if you, th- just one example, if you think of, and it's a sad example, it's one that most all of us know multiple times. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Um, do you know of anybody that has violated that? And you know the complications that brings to their life and the grief that brings to their life and the damage it might do to their marriage or to their children or to their reputation. Uh, somebody who's gone on that road and, and they haven't got caught, as it were, you know they live with a fear and a guilt and maybe they will get caught one day. It's it just, God is saying, you don't need to live that way. It doesn't need to hurt and pain you. Life doesn't need to do that to you. Will you just trust me? And so the, 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 the commands... The same love that gave us redemption, Exodus 1 through 18, 19. That same love gave us the law. Same love. That's why the Israelites, people who see the law through God's eyes, it's not a distress, it's not a a pain, it's a delight. 
It brings freedom. But the law of God also, and this is chapter 20. The law of God uh, is not to attain, but to maintain. Not to attain salvation, but to maintain salvation. Let's look at chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he's going to go on and give us the rest of the Ten Commandments. And then he's going to give us the rest of the law. Matter of fact, he's given no laws yet up to this point. He's, he starts them all with this little phrase. Now, if you go to Amazon, any Christian bookstore, and you want a, a poster of the Ten Commandments, I can pretty much guarantee you, you will not find verses 1 and 2 on there. It's just not there. They start at verse 3. They always, they always start at verse 3. Problem is, God thought that 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, pretty important. God thought that they were precursor to the rest of the law. I would say that if you don't understand 1 and 2, the rest of the law is going to be a burden. If you, if the rest of the law is anchored in 1 and 2. If you don't understand 1 and 2, the rest of the law is dangerous. But you have to understand 1 and 2. Look what he says. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God. Not I will be, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He says, I've already redeemed you. You didn't have to do anything to get redeemed. I just redeemed you. In chapter 3, he's talking to Moses. Verse 7, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. He's in agony. over the, He's always, always, always in agony over the suffering of his people. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The recipients to the commands, the law, are the redeemed. You're not redeemed because you do good things, because you try to get your act together, because you try to bring... So often, and we even can get into a mindset that says, I've got to earn God's favor, and I've got to do all these things to get him to like me. No, you don't. God, before these guys obeyed a single thing, God redeemed them. I can imagine them saying, God, what do you mean you're our God? For crying out loud, we don't even know what you expect. We knew what the gods in Egypt expected, and we got to do the ritual things, but we haven't done anything yet. And God's saying, that's, that's the point. It's all grace. I've redeemed you by grace. You haven't had to do anything. The law is not to attain a good standing before God. It's simply to maintain that standing before, before God. In, in this life, we know that they don't give away a championship just because you worked hard. Now you have to earn it. You don't get a scholarship just because you're who you are. No, you have to earn it. You don't get a paycheck just because uh, you look nice. You have to earn it. Everything in life worth getting is you have to earn except salvation. God says, oh no, no, no. It's not, it's not an attain thing. It's simply a, a maintain thing. Um, you've got to be born before you learn to walk. It's grace then the race, it's redemption, then the rules. Uh, there's one command, though, in the first 18 chapters of, Genesis, of Exodus that God gives them. Before he gives them the law, there's one command, and that's this. It's chapter 12. He says, 10th plague is getting ready to go on, right? They're still in Egypt. And he says, I need you to take a lamb and slaughter it, and you take its blood, dab its blood, and put it on the frame of your house. And if you do that, 
then tonight when the angel of death comes through, he'll pass over your house. And you think, well, how would blood keep the angel of death away? God is just saying, just trust me. Would you trust me? The one command he gives for the redemption is that they trust. Is that they trust. That's, that's key. That's going to come back through this story multiple, multiple times all the way, all the way to the end. So God's, God's law, it's not for distress, it's for delight, it's not to attain, it's to maintain. It's also not for religion, it's for relationship. This is good because our world thinks, oh, a Christian person is one who just takes all the the teachings and instruction out of the Bible and they live by that. And if you live by that, you're a Christian person. that's That's what the world thinks, I suppose. Why wouldn't they think that way? But God says, oh, no, 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 that's not the way it works. Verse 3, and this is the last one we're going to, the first command is the only one we'll look at, but he says, you shall have no other gods before me, period. The, the very first command of the 600 and something commands, the very first command of the top 10 is, is relationship. This, this is marriage terminology. Can you, can you imagine a, a marriage where you got the, the groom and the bride there, and, and the bride says, says, Honey, you can have all the other women you want just as long as I'm number one. And can you imagine? The groom says, Sweetie, you know, you can have all the other men you want whenever, just as long as I'm your favorite. You would not put up with that. God does not put up with that. God says, I want a healthy, real love relationship with you. And I know the path there is exclusivity. And so he says, all the rules, all the rules, all of them, all of them are about relationship with me, relationship with the body, with redeemed, redeemed folk. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 says, I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be assigned between us. Why? Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. This is important for us because we think, well, when my faith is stronger, see, then I'll obey more. And God says, you got it backwards. As you obey my heart, my laws, as you you get to know them and put them into practice, you know what happens? You know me better. Your faith grows. Don't get it back. You get it backwards. Your faith is never going to be there. It, it's that, that, that as we obey, we get to know him. That's what he's for. I remember I was in uh, Oriental Institute Museum, University of Chicago. I think there are 10 Palestinian archaeology museums in the country. Uh, University of Chicago has one of them. Free museum. It's worth going. It's, it's wonderful. I was a little kid because I grew up in the, the Chicago Burbs. So I w- was there met several different times. But I'm going through, and we're in this one room, the, the, the Egypt, Egyptian room, and it's big, like you think of a museum, they got like one glass case in the middle. And so we go up to the glass case, and there's ten little artifacts in there. And our guide, who was certainly not a Christian by any means, she said, she said, do you remember the story about the ten plagues? Yeah, yeah, we understand. I remember that. I was in Sunday school my whole life. Of course I remember that. She said, if you ever wondered... Why it was Nile turns to blood instead of the sand turns to glass? Or maybe, have you ever wondered why it's frogs and not hippopotami? Or, or you, ever, you ever wonder why, why, and why 10 and not 11 and not 9? I never wonder. I don't know. She said, these are all from that era, from Egypt. These are the gods 
of Egypt. Ten of them. And each, each plague was directed at one of these gods. These gods could pr- promise blessing in so many ways. But the Israeli god had to decimate each one of them. When the last one was done, Pharaoh really had no choice. It blows my mind. This was a very non-Christian tour guide who was sharing this with us. God had just demonstrated to his people that all of the gods that they knew, all the gods in the world that they knew of, he was so much greater. That they they weren't going to promise everything and not deliver, but he. And so he said, you you, you can't go back that way. Because he knows they're on their way to Canaan. And in Canaan, keep in mind, there are no atheist nations at this point. I mean, every single nation has probably got a primary God and then a, a myriad of secondary gods. It just, it's just the way life worked. You've got Ashtaroth, who is the, the goddess of, of love and war and children and childbearing. And you, you had Baal, who is the uh, Canaanite god of, of uh, fertility. And he made the crops grow. And you had Chemish, who was the Moabite god of um, uh, justice. And you had Dagon, who was the Philistine grain god. And you had Marduk, who was the Babylonian storm god. You're going through hard times, you get to know Marduk. And you have Moloch, who's the Ammonite god of the underworld. You don't want to tick him off. He's a great guy. And God knows that his people are going. That's the neighborhood they're moving into. And all of those gods. And one day, the Israeli guys are going to be out there planting their field. And the locals will come up and start laughing. And they'll say, what's the problem? So It's never going to work. Well, what do you mean? It's not going to be a good seed. This is fertile land. What do you mean it's not going to work? Not... Have you offered a sacrifice to Baal? Well, no, no. Well, I don't know what it's like in Egypt, but I'm telling you right here, Baal owns this land. And if you don't offer sacrifice to Baal, your crops are, are sh- Can you say long winter? Because your whole family is done. And you know, you've got one shot at this. If you make a mistake with this one, your family's going to really struggle through the... They're all going to die through the winter. Huh. Or maybe, ladies, you're expecting a baby. So you go to the local OBGYN, and he says, okay, I want you to smoke, and I want you to eat right, and I want you to offer a sacrifice to Ashtaroth. And you go, I don't, I don't offer sacrifices to Ashtaroth. And he says, you want a healthy baby? You offer sacrifices to Ashtaroth. That's the way we do it here. My wife, when she had her seventh, I'm telling you, there were some complications, but I offered a sacrifice to Ashtaroth, and everything was fine. You, want healthy, you, you do it the way you want to do it, I'm just saying. You start thinking, man, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Or maybe you go into court, and you know you really didn't do it, but the evidence looks really, really bad, and you got Harry Hangman, the judge, and you, you, it's just, and you know there's no appeal process, and so whatever happens is going to happen, and someone whispers in your ear, you know, Chemish is the god of justice? I, if I'm you, I'm, t- I'm talking to Chemish a little bit, and maybe offering a little sacrifice here. And what could it hurt, right? Well, God knows they're moving into that area. And they will be assaulted by gods. The, the ancients had many gods. Now here's, here's the deal. Moderns have many gods. We think that those guys were so primitive. And those guys were so unsophisticated. And those guys were so foolish. Listen, they didn't have the science that we have. They didn't have the technology we have. But they were just as intelligent they were, they were not uh, inferior in their, in their understanding in that way. Their heart was just as deceptive. And so today, we don't worship Ashtaroth. We just worship what she stands for, right? We just worship sex in our culture. And we don't worship a Baal. We just worship materialism. He who's got the most toys 
wins type of thing. You've got to have better and bigger and nicer and sharper and faster and shinier. Yeah, we worship Baal. That's who we worship. We don't worship a little uh, statue, gold statue. We like our gold like in bricks or maybe in coins or pictures of dead presidents. Those, that's what we worship. People have not, we have not changed. People's hearts are still the same. And that's why God comes on the front end. And he says, first rule. It's not for, that's not for rule's sake. It's for relationship's sake. It's, it's, it's guard that relationship with me. Guard it. Guard it. Uh, gods. If you, Luther has, has, has said that, that God, a God, is whatever your soul clings to and relies upon. That is your God. J.I. Packer. He mentions whatever one allows to run his life becomes his God. Tim Keller, and I don't have it on the slide, but Keller says idolatry is simply taking good things, secondary things though, and making them primary, making them ultimate things. That's idolatry. Would we worship ourselves? Would we worship things, image, Reputation, popularity, sports, relationships. What is it that we would worship? What is it that you've put above your relationship with God? When uh, we were back in Wisconsin, we lived in a uh, area, uh, home association type place where you couldn't put up fences. No fences. So nobody had a fence. We didn't have any fences. Well, one, one day, Teresa's out watching Andrew. Supposed to be watching Andrew. And if you know Andrew, you'll understand it too. But so she's watching Andrew and they're out and we didn't have fences. So she's keeping an eye on him. I think she's reading the mail or whatever else. And she looks up and Andrew's gone. And so she says, well, he's probably in the backyard on her swing set thing. And then, you know, she has one of those mom intuition stuff where she just feels, I better go check the backyard. She goes and looks at the backyard. He's not there. So she gets into the house and she starts screaming, you know, Andrew, Andrew. And then she starts to panic as she goes through every room and he's not there anywhere. And he's not in the, in the basement and he's not outside. And so she grabs the other kids and she said, okay, you go this way and you go that way. And you, we're going to go find him. So everyone is screaming, running through the neighborhood. Well, what Andrew did is Andrew, he's two years old. He walks down the street about two blocks to a very busy road. Starts walking right down the middle of this very busy road. A uh, little two-year-old kid. A couple of construction guys in a big uh, dump truck thing come by and they see this little... Grateful they're dads, right? Because they see this little kid walking in. So they stop and they, they get him. And they put him in the truck. And they start fuming. They were not real happy. And so... And it wasn't, they weren't ticked off at Andrew. They were kind of upset at us. So they start driving through the neighborhood. They hear us screaming. And they come in front of our house and Teresa's backing up with the van. She's going to go find him. She doesn't know where she's going. But she's going somewhere. She's going to find him. And all of a sudden she realizes that Drew's in the front seat of the thing. And they weren't going to come back to us initially. They were hanging on to him, but they weren't not real happy. They had some words for us. Ultimately, we got them back. I don't know what we had to bribe them. But either way, we got them back. (laughs) Now, think about this for a second. There's no fences. But Drew was sincere. He was not bent on evil. He was not trying to do all these things wrong. He just, without the limitations, without the fences, he got outside of a place of safety. He got into a place of great vulnerability. He got into a place where he could be hurt very, very bad. Often, we take God's word 
And we, 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 we don't have time for it, because who's got time for it, right? And we live our life outside of the fence, and something bad happens to us, and we're going, oh, God, how come you didn't, what's going on? And God is saying, I gave you the fences. If you decided you didn't have time to check them out, I'm not sure what to do. I shared them with you. God's word is it's not to distress us, to burden us, and be a pain for us. It's, it's to, to give us peace, give us freedom, it gives us delight. God's, God's word is not a way we attain pleasing to God. It's the way we maintain that relationship with God. God's, God's word is not about a religion. The world does not need another religion. Lots of Christian folks live in religion. It's about relationship with him. And so as you read, continue to read, read this book, as you come across these things, ask yourself, what does this rule tell me about God? 